Welcome to the Book Stories podcast. My name is Richard Davis. We speak to authors, publishers, booksellers, collectors, librarians, and other book lovers about how books have shaped their lives. Today's guest is Oliver Darkshire, the author of Once Upon a Tome, The Misadventures of a Rare Bookseller. Released in 2022 to much acclaim, Once Upon a Tome is a memoir about Oliver's experiences of working at Henry Sutherland's Limited, a quintessential antiquarian bookshop in Sackville Street in London, which has been in business since 1761. Oliver's book begins with him being hired as an apprentice bookseller. With a desk next to the front door, Oliver learns the peculiar ways of antiquarian bookselling, including customers who never buy anything, collectors who can't stop buying books, shoplifters in long coats who attempt to steal books, and book runners with boxes of books to sell. Welcome, Oliver. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. Um, so let's start at the beginning. Why did you? Uh, why were you interested in becoming a bookseller? Well, and truth be told, I thought I was under the misapprehension it might be easy, or manageable, at least. Um, now, knowing how many people want to get into the rare book trade, I suppose I was rather ungrateful, but I sort of fell into it. Um, thinking it was you know, any other storefront you know, apprenticeship s- scheme. I thought it was sort of a cashier job, you know. Um, and it became, it was much, much more than that. And I fell quite hard. Uh, I never managed to climb out again. So you didn't have a lot of prior knowledge of the profession? I didn't. I had none. I had no idea what I was getting into, which I think is the um, only way anyone falls for it these days, I think. Um, <laughs> kind of lured into it like a Venus flytrap and it snaps around you. Indeed. You know? So what were your... What were your first impressions of Sutherlands? For me, and this still happens when I uh, when I go into the store to work today, it's the, it's the noise, the change in noise levels. Because London, obviously, is quite noisy. It's quite close to Piccadilly Circus, one of the busiest roads in the world for thoroughfare traffic. Um, and it just noise just cuts out. As soon as that heavy door slams shut behind you, it's complete. The books muffle it. So it's almost like you've stepped into another... Another, another world, really, um, and the smell of the books, the atmosphere just changes. That heavy, that that heavy feeling where all the books are muffling out all the noise, um, the change of you know, smell, the dust in the air—it's um, it's a different environment completely to when you step outside. Um, <laughs> very, very different, very shadowy. And was that appealing? I think it was. I've always been one of those people who likes to be left alone. Um, and, you know, having lived in London at that point in various attic rooms and boxes and crates, you know, as one does when one is, when is young in London for a long time, it was one of the first times I'd actually not been able to hear a car going <laughs> for years. I've been, I realized I've been listening to cars in the back of my mind for years and suddenly it all cut out. It was very peaceful, very surreal experience, actually. So it, it sounds like an oasis. But in reality, it probably was. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I'm a man who sort of um, leans into his mistakes. Um, and I thought, there, this is a peaceful place, surely. Um, I, I'm not being misled. But no, it was. It turned out to be very different indeed, actually. A lot okay. of people coming and going. Indeed. Well, let's start with the customers. So in, in the book, you take a great deal of joy in classifying the customers into certain groups. Uh and writing a little about their their ways. So perhaps you can give me a couple of examples. Let's talk about uh, collectors or smorgs, as you you uh, like to describe them. 
Yeah, so I have this 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 theory about collectors as a whole, and that they kind of they they fit into two vague categories. So smorgs being dragon like creatures from the Hobbit, and they they collect almost almost anything from any genre as long as it's as long as it's important or pretty or valuable or notable in some way. So they don't mind whether it's about plants or tables or the chandeliers, as long as it's you can sell it to them as you know important or notable. There's only this many copies. It's covered in gold. You know, it was touched by the Queen of Sheba. They'll take it. And alternatively, on the, on the other hand, on the flip side of that coin, you have what I call Draculas, who are obsessed with one one thing to the death of everything else, and they'll say it's only about chandeliers. So you end up, you know, you sell them everything important you can find on chandeliers, and then you find them everything that isn't about chandeliers but might have been related. And so you've got to balance those two kinds of customers, one in each hand, and figure out who you're talking to so that you don't lose yeah. them. But you would get to know the Draculas, right? They would be r- regulars? Oh, absolutely. Well, it, the trick, as long as you can sell them what they want, you have to make sure that so if one, someone comes in wanting books on chandeliers and you don't have any, you'd have to, you'd find some. You'd invigle it, you'd ask your contacts, you'd hunt them down so that you could make them a customer, you know, and if they right. felt that, you know, you were meeting their specific interests, they'll hang around, but only if you are meeting their interest. One of the other groups you referred to, cryptids. Perhaps you'd like to describe what they are. Cryptids are sort of anomalies. <laughs> so they're, they're people who don't really want to buy anything or really have any questions or have any business being in a bookstore at all. And they, they have unusual habits usually. So whether they're floating about and are asking if they can sing or if they, they wear a very peculiar suit or if you occasionally find them in the basement when you didn't see them go down there, they'll have some kind of almost supernatural quirk uh, that makes them notable. Um, and other bookstores likely know about them too, and they just kind of exist in the local ecosystem. Um, you know, everyone has their quirks in bookselling, but cryptids are perhaps the strangest. And their passion is just hanging around in antiquarian bookstores without actually I, buying anything. I think so. I mean, I'm not sure what they do otherwise. They they spend a lot of time in antiquarian bookstores, so I suppose they're creatures of leisure. Um, I was wondering if it was some sort of refuge for them, some, like, actually was an oasis for them for some reason. I like to think a bit like you know, the natural historians and ecologists. If you don't understand it, one should probably leave alone. It has some purpose that you're not aware of, you know. Um, so I like to think they have some kind of overarching need or want to be there, and they don't do any harm. Did so, you have to keep an eye on them, or, or were you just just uh, just hurry them out at the end of the day? Usually, they're known factors. So they'll you know they're sort of they're people who are they're classified as a cryptid. They've been around for a long time. So you'll say, oh, that's the lady who appears and, you know, asks for five shopping bags and leaves every few months. And someone will point them out to you and say that's what she does. And because they're a known factor, you don't really have to take, keep too much of a close eye on them because they're just part of the, as I say, part of the ecosystem. It's okay. Odd, so the people, pretty interesting. The books, also interesting. So Southerns has a huge, long history and a, a wide array of antiquarian and collectible books. What did you find? What did you find more interesting, the people or the books? It's sometimes quite difficult to separate them. Sometimes we'll we'll speak of you know customers buy the books they bought. Oh, the chap he bought, you know that book on Napoleon. And sometimes you'll speak of the books by oh, you know uh, what was a book bought by Mister So and So. After a while, because the books are very unique and the people are unique, it becomes quite difficult to split them apart. Um, they almost become one entity after a while, particularly if they're collectors you've known for a long time or book runners you've known for a long time. They sort of become one and the same thing, <laughs> really. It's very difficult to talk about one without the other. 
how much knowledge of books did you have before you became an apprentice? Honestly, very little. I mean, I was always one of those compulsive readers. And well, it gave me a lot of books when I was a, when I was a kid, and I had big bookshelves, I guess. But um, as far as antiquarian books goes, which is a whole different ball game, I knew all, I knew nothing, which I think was their preferred state. I came in un, untainted by prior knowledge, I suppose. Um, very easy to shape into what that particular bookstore needed. Um, and every bookstore needs something uh, individual, I suppose. I don't remember you having like a formal training program from your from no, your colleagues. Not really. No, they every all of them have a different idea of what is required to be an antiquarian bookseller. And I think anyone who works in an antiquarian bookstore for long enough, kind of, or at least one with lots of colleagues, um, and there are some, you know, is taught. Uh, an eighth of what they know by one person, a quarter by another person that ends up their own bookseller at the end of it, right. <laughs> which is something all its own, which is kind of beautiful in a way. So the skills of cataloging and understanding and grading a book's condition, how do those, how do those ones come to you? I, well, mostly you sit there. Well, I was brought boxes of books. I would attempt to catalog them and somebody would come by and say it was wrong with a big pen. Um, and they would all disagree as to why it was wrong, though it was wrong. And various different pen marks would come across in corrections. And after a while, I'd have to make my own decisions as to which corrections I thought were the <laughs> appropriate ones. Right. And you learned by sort of osmosis in a way, just by hanging around the books and watching other people. How long was it before you felt comfortable? Oh, gosh. Um, do I ever feel comfortable? I don't know. Years, I think. Three or four years before I really felt like I could be left alone to, and didn't have to ask questions every time I picked up a book. Because a right. lot of it is... I wouldn't say guesswork, but a lot of it is, you know, opinion in a lot of ways and deciding what condition a book's in, you know, what material it is. You have to be, have confidence in your, in your own judgment. And that takes a while to build. Even if you, even if you're sure you're right, actually, sometimes you want to double check. And it took me three or four years to stop double checking every time I made a call. But, you know, still a, still a whippersnapper in the scheme of things. Indeed. Uh, so you do indeed talk about some of the interesting books that are in that shop or have been in that shop over the years. Uh, I didn't realize that the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam, the one that's at the bottom of the Atlantic, came through that shop. Um, perhaps you can explain about this cursed book. One of my favorite stories that I will constantly retell in that the manager of Sutherland's at the time decided they were going to commission this Rubiat. And the words he used were, you know, no expenses to be spared. And so they went to Sangorsky and Sutcliffe, these legendary bookbinders who worked in jeweled bookbindings, and said, spend as much money as you want. And so, of course, they did, because they were collecting an invoice. And they put this gigantic bejeweled peacock on the cover, legendarily bad luck for sailors. Um, and they, they, they made this huge bejeweled book. We used to have a picture of it on the wall until we realized that was probably bad luck too. And they tried to sell it a few times, and they couldn't. They couldn't find a buyer. And on one of these trips across the Atlantic, they put it on the... <laughs> On the on the an unsinkable ship, obviously, that, because they couldn't afford to lose it, and so which ship can't be sunk will wait for the Titanic, um, just to make sure it gets back across to its to, to we buy we might have found, and of course it sank the entire thing to the bottom of the ocean where it remains to this day. Um, not only that, it gets better because the uh, one of the bookbinders immediately drowned soon afterwards. I forget what it was, Sangorsky or Sutcliffe, but he drowned in a terrible accident almost immediately afterwards, and a replica they made was bombed in the war <laughs> so there's, there's a third copy out there somewhere in, in, in a lockbox in several cases of lead to stop the curse but there, there has never been a more unlucky book than that one was it a peacock it was, well i think it was the legendarily it was the it was the peacock on the cover that did it it's bad luck for sailors but who knows really 
Is it because they have eyes in their feathers that the it's eyes are considered unlucky? something to do with unlucky? the evil eye trope, yeah. couldn't say precisely what, but um, supposedely that was the one that <laughs> misguided it. <laughs> it was very pretty, but just uh, definitely cursed. Indeed. So you also cover house calls, where you go out looking for books and some person has contacted the shop and said they may have some some rare books for sale fruitless journeys were, were they the most of most of them gosh so a bookseller's time obviously is um extremely finite and you try and balance it between being in the store where you can sell books and going out to find stuff and you have to judiciously try and decide which of these mysterious letters and emails are going to lead to a fruitful collection and the art of it which i'm still not very good at is being able to pinpoint the people who are who actually have decent stuff in their attic, just from what they've sent you, which is always, you know, <laughs> um, either something completely cryptic or too short or so much information that you can't take it all in. Um, and the, the, a lot of my colleagues who've been in the trade for a long time are able to somehow know which of these collections out of the 50 emails they get sent, they'll say this one, and they'll, they'll know that it's got rare stuff in the attic. Whereas I'll look at them and go, I don't know, and end up going to 50 houses, 49 of which, you know, um, are underwater or in a bog up a mountain or something. Um, so, so there is not to it. What are those clues? It's like uh, my my other half was a professor in law or professor in English literature at Oxford, something like that. I, that wish, would be I wish I could tell you. Yeah, some things like that, I suppose. Yeah, if they're names that they recognize, or sometimes it's if they recognize them from other, you know, they've heard of, of another bookseller, and you've got a client called X, and they, 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 they put the dots together and say, okay, they've died. No, their, their, their stuff is up right. Perhaps, I guess I don't know. It's it's it seems to be. I mean, people are often aren't willing to give their, give up their secrets, but some people just have hunches. It seems uh, a little better than mine. Yeah, bookseller's intuition, I guess. Mm. So Sutherland's itself is a an interesting establishment. I, I think it started in York before coming down to London, but it has a really long history. And in London, you, you described some of the forgotten corners of Sutherlands, and you wrote about a cellar uh, that's in King's Cross that's filled with boxes and forgotten books. Perhaps you could describe going into this <laughs> this cellar under King's Cross. So, I mean, you grow accustomed to anything over time, I guess, but going into a new cellar is always terrifying because then occasionally the accountant will ring up and say, are you still using X cellar? And we'll say, what cellar? And they'll say, well, we're paying for it. And we said, well, do you have keys? And the conversation will go on. And eventually someone will be sent down to the, a, a new seller to find out what is in there. Or, oh, I think we have a box of X books in this seller. And so as an apprentice, I will censor them over the over the years. And there's one below King's, which was said to be below King's Cross and was actually nowhere near it. Um, you know, I sent down there with a, a lowly apprentice with a, with a set of keys armed with, you have to get past several different gates, down the stone steps into the, alleyway down to the down to the dark it was a very spooky experience and usually they make they we travel in pairs these days just in case um but on this particular occasion um, i made my way into the into the cellars and i was given the fright of my life by a woman who appeared behind me in the dark and accused me of ste- <laughs> almost accused me of stealing um and i turned around did a you know 180 degree leap my head almost hit, hit the ceiling um, there I was, you know, with a single lantern looking for books in a, an abandoned creepy cellar full of creatures. I ran all the way back to the store and said, no, there's, there's a lady in the cellar. And they were like, yes, yeah, she lives there. Were you rude to her? Um, <laughs> I don't know. It was like, why didn't anyone mention it? And they were like, well, of course there's a lady who lives down there. She's very lovely. And it turns out this is a known fact. Nobody had thought to warn me of this. 
that turns out in a cellar filled with books. Post box, as little cellar. I think, I think it's converted or something into into a, into a domicile. I, I assume, but no one thought to warn me of this before I entered. Had to poke around or warn her, so she thought I was some miscreant. Yeah, it happens more often than you'd think, I suppose. But um, so some of these books have been down there for a couple of hundred years. I mean, we occasionally try and clear out the cellars, but it never quite works because stuff always appears that we've missed. Um, and various different cellars, books are moved between them and it gets confused and every so often we'll find a new one. So yeah, it's you know, I, 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 it was only recently that we, or most of a new cellar we had to go and look at and we had to send two people down there with the bolt cutters and get through the old padlock and find out what was in there. And usually it's um, miscellaneous haunted junk um, and sometimes boxes of books that everyone's, you know, remainders someone's forgotten about or a case of books that no one can identify. Fun though, if peculiar. It's literally like the basement, and I'm talking to you from today, where there's some stuff that's been here when I moved here. I put in a box, and I haven't looked at since. Layers, isn't it? Sort of stratigraphy, sort of. Layers of objects that get put in a corner and forgotten. So you sort of came uh, to um, notoriety uh, when you got to run the shop's Twitter account. I remember seeing your tweets at the time about some of the odd things that were going on in the shop. How how did they let you onto onto Twitter? Well, again, I mentioned that I'm, I often I lean into my mistakes, and this was another one of them. I thought I'd be useful. I thought it would be helpful um, <laughs> to, to to see if I could, you know. Um, I mean, people didn't weren't using it very much, and I thought, well, you know, what harm could it do? I thought to myself, what could possibly come of this? What nuisance could I possibly conjure with this? Surely it'd be helpful. And so I just started talking, you know, day to day basis about the things that we. We encounter uh, thinking that you know it would be relatively harmless, but it picked up speed alarmingly quickly. It sort of snowballed out of control. So we have people coming in all the time, uh, looking for the various artifacts, you know, owls and bell jars and things that we've mentioned, and um, it it touched a nerve somewhere <laughs> in the zeitgeist. I don't know where in that unpredictable way the internet has. You know, it's very difficult always to say what's going to. Uh, enthuse people, but for some reason, Sutherland's story just it, it seemed to resonate with people far more than anyone anticipated. Um, I've made it rather unusual, I'm afraid. And when when did you think? Well, there's a there's a book in here somewhere. Oh gosh, I mean, I, my so the, the chap who's now my now my agent contacted me out of the blue. Um, you know, in the direct messages of the of the app, and I assumed you know, he was a scam artist, and you know, said as much. And that healthy relationship. <laughs> eventually fruit of the book he was quite insistent um, very persistent actually which is the only reason the book ever came out of it but no he was um he was adamant there was something in there um and so who was i to say no i suppose so he was thinking that uh, a tweet is potentially a chapter i i think he, he, he clearly been looking at it for a little while and made up his mind um and so uh, part of least resistance in the end was to write the book <laughs> So what is what is your status now? Are you an author or, or are you still a bookseller or are you both? Gosh, I don't really know what I am anymore. But then again, I never really have been. So you can still find me at the store a lot of the time. So gr- grumbling away in the afternoon. So I must be at least a, partly a bookseller still, I think. And So I'm often still down there. Though I live up I said up, up north now, so less than I used to be. Um, so I quite like it at this end of the country. But um, I'm still down there sometimes. I, I, you know, still writing. So I guess we'll see. Um, an enjoyable period of insecurity. <laughs> Indeed, both both professions. Um, <laughs> what what's your writing direction going to be then? God, I don't want to jinx it. I've decided. So everyone who asks me that, I'm refusing. You're not going to gonna say. Yeah, I'll just I'll, I'll shoot them using the head if I say anything. <laughs> so I've decided to 
keep it under wraps. Fiction or non-fiction? <laughs> Nothing. No, not Nothing. a word. Not a thing <laughs> from me until I've got something actually concrete. There, there's actually a healthy array of um, books about used bookstores and uh, rare book selling that I find that I, I come across. It's, it's a, it seems to be a rather lucrative market, it turns out. I had no idea before I started writing one, but it seems to be its own, its own genre in its own way. Yeah. Sean, the guy at the Wigtown Bookshop, mm. I think he's got three books out. I, I definitely saw two of them. There might be a third. I'm not sure. Might be a third of, yeah. But uh, I, I think he's popular. They're quite funny. Yeah. He may have found that he was earning a bit more money from the books than he was from the used bookstore. <laughs> I think in the end he probably is, yeah. Um, but or I think the books drive customers in to the bookstore. It's in a, probably a cycle, I like to think. Well, I, I hope it is. So that'll be nice for him. I think it's nice nice to see people doing well. <laughs> Has your book helped Southerns problems. in the last 12 months? Who can say? Um, it seems to have, you know, um, not caused too much alarm, which I think was the goal. Um, <laughs> not ruffled too many of the wrong feathers, which I... No, no. <laughs> that, was, that, that was my... That was what I desired, you know, um, not to cause too much, too many problems. Always been the goal. The low bar for myself, but... Ah, so my my last question is, um, which we ask everybody: What book or books are you currently reading? I'm trudging my way through um, Traditions of Lancashire by John Roby, which is folk tales uh, of Northern England. You know, goblin builders and ghosts and abbots and astrologers and so on, uh, which is quite fun. Um, I picked it up at a at a market in town the other day. Um, it's dense, but I like a dense book. So. Does does Lancashire have its own particular supernatural folklore? Well, this is what part of what I'm sort of um, curious about. Now, I have a little collection, a growing collection of English folklore books behind me, and I find it really fascinating that you know, West England is full of a lot of the same the same story, just slightly recolored. And when you go to, when you get to a town across, they'll be telling the same story, but with a different name. And if you go another town across, they'll have changed out a person or a monster. And the further you go, the more warped the tale comes. And it's quite fun tracing it back, sort of tracing the same story across a region because you don't have to go far before somebody's come up with a new version of it which is part of what fascinates me and language has got you know a whole load of them but then, you know it's all, it's all black dogs and ghosts and ram-headed demons coming out of the soil and but yeah. the, the specific variations of it fascinate me right and you do collect do you collect um a certain topic just a little um i try not to do too much because as uh, i'm aware of the vice that it is it could easily get out of control um, but yeah, I have a, I just have a little collection of um, sort of um, English folklore books, mostly sort of um, about 1850 to 1900, 1910, maybe. I try and stay within that ballpark of the Clock Covers Folklore Society, that kind of thing. And I have some uh, I like the occasional science, pulp paperbacks, science fiction and stuff. That's always fun. So I keep a. Uh, and behind you on the screen, I can see a bottle inside a little case on your other side. Is that yeah. a bottle? <laughs> Is that just medicinal? I try not to open my cupboard of curiosities too much in case anything gets out. <laughs> There's a few cursed items in there too. That's where the curiosities go. Ah, oh, the old curiosity cabinet. Yeah. <laughs> when I die, someone's going to open it and get a lot of curses all at once. Excellent. So do you read mostly uh, older books or do you read anything new? Um, I do sometimes. It depends what comes to... Um, comes to hand, I suppose. And now you say that, I'm wondering what it is that I've actually read that's modern recently. <laughs> it depends. What I, I often give a recommendation. So if somebody passes something on to me, I'll 
I'll read it. Usually fantasy. Uh, I'm really big on my Pratchett. I love my Terry Pratchett. Um, no Le Guin, sort of fantasy novels, that kind of thing. Um, high yeah. fantasy, low fantasy, I don't really care. Um, not so big on science fiction most of the time, but I can occasionally be swayed. Uh, but yeah, it really depends. I usually go by recommendations, whatever comes across my feed usually, or someone shoves in my hand and ends up on the pile. Excellent. All right, so uh, that's all we have time for today. I would like to thank Oliver Darkshire for joining us today. No, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Oliver is the author of Once Upon a Tome, The Misadventures of a Rare Bookseller, which will soon be out in paperback in the UK. Thank you for listening. Visit richarddavis.ca to learn more about this podcast, our guests, and the books mentioned in the show. My name's Richard Davis, and I'll see you again soon.